Shabbat Shalom. All right, Galatians chapter 3 this week, but before we get into the text, I do have an announcement. December 3rd, we're going to be switching over to a new website, same address, torahtothetribes.com, but we're also going to be switching over to a new streaming platform, so it's going to be a huge upgrade. You're going to see a lot of differences, but there may be some initial, you know there's going to be some initial glitches, there always is, so just be patient, Um, and also the past notes um, and past teachings, they may be temporarily affected, so if you want to um, grab any Anything that's online now would be the time because, like I say, they may be temporarily affected as we do move over to the new site. But it's going to be a huge upgrade. It's going to enable us to reach so many more people with a much better quality production and product too. So praise Yahweh that we're able to do that. So what a wonderful, wonderful blessing to see that people are tithing, giving to the ministry, donating, and we're able to then take those resources and then be able to reach more and more people. And we really feel that the live streaming has been able to help us to connect to so many people. But there has been a lot of problems because we've been going from the website and redirecting people to YouTube. And then we have to deal with, you know, Google, YouTube, and the globalists. What we're going to do is we're going to bring it all in-house, and therefore we're going to have control over it. And that is ultimately the best thing, because things are just getting worse and worse and worse out there, aren't they? They really are. And they're just... um, Anyway, I don't want to get into that. Let's get into the text, Galatians chapter 3, before I go off on another conspiracy theory. But Galatians chapter 3, super excited this week to get into this text. This is a foundational text for all of us that are seeking to find out and discover what is Rav Shaliak Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul, talking about when he's talking about the law. How are believers supposed to relate to the law? And this is something that we've all been seeking and searching for all of our believing lives. Whether there is the traditional institutionalized um, church position, the messianic position, or now as we're growing and maturing, coming into the Malkitzedic priesthood, how do we view the law? This is extremely important, extremely important. So we understand within the institutionalized church and the typical um, theology that many of us have been victim to, and I really mean that, we've been victim to this kind of theology for some people the whole of your lives. I mean, some of you even went to seminary and you really were victimized there. But there's this seemingly biased um, theology and it's very prejudiced against the Torah. And we all know that. The common institutionalized church view of this text, Galatians It's very simple. It's very cut and dry. And ultimately, it means that you can just do away with the Torah because, of course, Paul, well, he's, he's, he's rebuking the Galatians because they're in total error because they're trying to be obedient to the Jewish law. They're trying to add the law to salvation in Jesus. And of course, now that you're in Christ, the law has no impact on your life. It has been done away with. It's very simple, very cut and dry, and now you move on. And many of us have been victims to that theology. 
We grew up with it. But now, what about the messianic interpretation that many of us are familiar with, myself particularly, on the other hand? There's also a bias. We have to admit, there's also a bias. But it's bias towards all things Jewish. Any and all Torah in any of its form, it's all Torah, Torah, Torah. And the prejudice, well, the prejudice is against the church. And it can become quite poisonous, in fact. Always dogging on the church, you know? And I've been accused of that and been guilty of that in times past too. And that's the prejudice against the church. And the common messianic view of Galatians chapter 3 is that Shaul is rebuking the Galatians' error. Why? Because they are, in fact, adding the oral law, which, of course, is a legalistic form of Torah, and Jewish halakha to the written law. So there's this dichotomy of oral law, not good, versus written law, very good. And this is the typical messianic interpretation, but it's based upon what? Well, after 10 or so years in the messianic movement and a lot of digging, you come to realize, well, it's actually based upon a very complicated web of twists and turns and pages and pages of messianic commentary and the adding of words and phrases that actually don't appear in any text. And they'll even use back-translated Aramaic that isn't even in existence to try and support these views. And that is, again, a very biased approach to the text. But now we come into what is the Malkitzedic view? And we have to admit there's a bias there too. What is that bias? There is a bias towards all covenants Yahusha's blood established. That's my bias. That is the Malkitzedic bias. It is a bias towards all covenants that Yahusha's blood established. And they must have a proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal, and be supported solely by the biblical text. Solely by the biblical text. And that is the admitted bias. And is there a prejudice? Equal weights and measures? Yes, there is a prejudice also. And the prejudice is on lawlessness on one hand. But on the other hand, the prejudice is against rabbinic Torah law, void of blood covenant ratification. There's a prejudice against that, and there should be. You see, the Malkitzedic view of Galatians 3 is a polemic addressing the book of the law and the book of the covenant dichotomy. And it's very succinct when you look at it this way. But you have to admit, with all three views, there is prejudice and there is a bias. That's just honesty. But I believe in all integrity to be biased that you're looking only for the blood ratification covenant of Yahusha and your bias is against lawlessness and your bias is also against rabbinic Torah interpretation void of covenant is the narrow road and the truth of righteousness. 
We understand, yes, it is a narrow road, because we understand in Shemot, Exodus chapter 19, that the book of the covenant was accepted by what? Faith. Faith. That's the inception point. All that Yahweh has said, we shall do. And later, it was broken at the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. And when that happened, then... Yahweh was going to destroy the nation, except for a mediator, Moses, came in and mediated with Yahweh to spare their lives, and Yahweh then imposed a not agreed to book of the law as a tutor to keep Israel under guard until the time of reformation when the seed would come that would pay the death penalty position price through blood ratification and therefore fulfill the covenant of the flaying open of the pieces where Yahweh walked between the pieces as a burning oven and a flaming torch and then return you back into faith covenant by the blood of the Lamb. It's really not very complicated, and it's only supported by Scripture. But it's a paradigm shift, and it truly is a narrow road. Ephesians 2, the covenants of promise, which we were strangers of, of we have now been returned to only by the blood ratification of Yahushua. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has put you under a spell that you should not obey the truth since Yahushua HaMashiach has been clearly set forth before your eyes as being crucified among you? So Messiah clearly establishes boundaries, does he not? And those boundaries are, it says right here, based upon his blood ratification that happened at his crucifixion and we then are supposed to be witnesses of that within the community because he's in our very midst that's the testimony that we're all supposed to have this only would I learn from you did you receive the Ruach HaKodesh by the works of the law did you did you receive the Ruach HaKodesh by the works of the law or by obedience to MNR, or by obedience to faith. Now it's going to connect you back to the inception point. Because wherever we're going, it has to have an inception point. And that inception point in all of our lives isn't going to be anything that you did, anything that I did. That's the reason that I chose Yahushua in my life, is because I knew when I started to see if the, and search, if there was a God, I wanted to know what he was going to do with me and what he would deal with as far as I knew how I lived. I knew the things that I had done. And I knew what, how sick and twisted my heart was. And I knew that with all the religions that I looked into, that it would be me trying to do something, trying to meditate, trying to go to the sweat lodge, trying to dress up in this garb, trying to read that religious text. It was about me doing something, and I knew what I had done. So that didn't seem like a very good solution to me, because I was still left with me. 
And I had to die. I had to. Surely. I knew that. I was not that self-deceived, even as a lost heathen. If there was an Elohim, he had to deal with the things that I had done. Because I had lived a sick and twisted life. And all of the religions, it was all about me doing something. And it was only when I saw faith that comes from outside that regenerates the man inside and an application of blood as covering, that makes sense to me. Because that's the gospel message. The inception point in my life was not any works of law. It was pistis in the Greek, faith. I had to come to the mountain. And I had to say, all that you have said, I will do. Because of the blood ratification that you have put through your son. And that's when my life began. It's no different here. Are you so foolish, having begun your walk in the Ruach HaKodesh, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And you know what? Ten odd years in the Messianic movement and seeing and feeling the heaviness of it. I mean, it's a he- there's, there's this religious heavy spirit. And that, you know, that's not what drew me. What drew me is, if you love me, keep my commandments. What drew me was love. Because he purchased me, and like the woman who washed Yahusha's feet with her tears, that's me. Because you have sinned much, Matthew, you're forgiven much. Therefore, I wanted to wash him more, and I knew that was the washing of the word would sanctify me. And if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what drew me to Torah. That's what drew me. But then I started to see this heaviness. And I'd be like, after two or three years, I'd be like, I remember having somebody come here and sing. Just sing. Ruach HaKodesh filled. And I was just weeping. Because I hadn't experienced the Holy Spirit in a couple of years. Because of this heavy religious spirit and judgment. And I'm like, well, but I thought we were seeking the commandments. But how many of us then lost our way because of seeking righteousness. But look what it says. Having begun your walk in the Ruach HaKodesh, are you now made perfect by the flesh? You see, it wasn't the book of the law or the works of the law that brought the Ruach HaKodesh. Never. Because why? Paul says what? The law, meaning the book of the law, is not of faith, is it? The law is not of faith. In fact, the book of the law came because they broke faith. So the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. It was the faith, pistis, which came by hearing the message of Yahusha, his blood and his establishment of covenant entry by faith, just like Abraham, which connects us all back to Abraham That's what brings the Ruach HaKodesh. Are you now so foolish that you're going to depart from the covenant and go get circumcised and according to the book of the law, the law of works, the halakha of the misguided interpretation of the Jewish community? Is that what you're going to do? This is what he's asking them. 
Look at verse 4. Have you suffered so many things for nothing? If it is not yet for nothing, he that supplies you with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and works great Nisim signs among you, does he work those signs by works of the law, which is now we've concluded the book of the law, or by the hearing and faith? My crazy story, it was a Sunday. I was sitting out in a pasture with a Native American flute and a Native American drum, cross-legged, trying to connect with God. And this old man came up to me, and he said, how's that working out for you? (laughs) And I looked at him, and I said, I am frustrated. I just don't get this. I am trying to meditate. I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find God and my mind is everywhere. What are you doing today? And you know what he said to me? He said, I'm going out for breakfast with Bill. And then I'm going to go kick it with Jesus. Do you want to come? And I looked at him. I was like, you're going to do what? And this is what the man said. He said, yeah, I'm going out for breakfast with Bill. And I knew who Bill was. He was his friend. And then we're going to go kick it with Jesus. Do you want to come? And I was like, I was so disarmed. I was like, yeah, well, this is obviously not working for me. So I end up going to a church, which I hadn't been in. And the pastor's given a message that I didn't think I was listening to. And all of a sudden, he said, does anybody here, and you know, we knew him as Jesus back there, want to accept Yahushua as their Lord and Savior? And by faith, I heard his voice. And my heart literally started to pound out of my chest. And it was literally as if I, you, and I was there, and I stood right up. And you know how I am. I'm like, yes! And I felt the Ruach HaKodesh smack me in the chest, transformed right there. I went home and I said, Tamra, I just accepted Yahushua as my Lord and Savior. And of course, I called him Jesus back there. And do you know what my wife did? She looked at me like this and she went, She gave me the biggest eye roll ever. Because this is the guy that was going to be a Trappist monk. He was going to be a Buddhist. He was going to Native American sweat lodges and smoking tobacco up the yin-yang, beating drums, playing the flute, doing all kinds of crazy. Now it was Jesus. But my point is this. Look. He works great signs within us. And how does he do that? By your hearing and by faith. That's my testimony. And yes, I've gone here and I've gone there. But when I got into the law, the Torah, it was based upon the inception point, which is always going to be by hearing and by faith. And yes, I went to the left and to the right because I'm trying to find my way back from paganism isolation in the nations, and generational iniquity. 
And I've made a lot of mistakes, but this I understand. It all happened because I had a mountain experience. Yes, by hearing and by faith, not by works of law. So now in maturity, I do seek the Torah, but I seek it by hearing and by faith which is covenant because I go back to the mountain and I go, this is book of the covenant Torah. It is not the book of the law, works of law that have no faith. The law is not of faith. Book of the law, it's full of curses because it was imposed upon you because you broke faith. Infidelity is why the book of the law came. By hearing and in faith, I accepted Yahusha's blood ratification, and so do you. And then that brings us safely into covenant Torah. It might take you 20, 30 years to get there. You may go here and you may go there. You may come fully entrenched into the messianic movement and become a religious Pharisee. But you know what? If you had the inception point of faith by hearing, he will take you into covenant Torah. Hebrews 8, 6, the new covenant is given as Torah, but not book of the law. It's covenant Torah because it has to connect back to the mountain, Exodus 19, because it's always been about hearing and it's always been about faith. And that brings the Ruach HaKodesh and healing signs among you. And it will never happen. It can never happen by observing the book of the law. Because if you do that, then you feel, you feel that heaviness, don't you? You're, you're in the messianic movement. You know you're there because you're searching for the right things and you're sick of the Christmas tree. You're sick of the paganism. You're sick of all that nonsense and the hypocrisy. But you're like, well, this, why is there this heaviness, this oppression, this judgment? Why? We're supposed to be believers fired up and the Ruach HaKodesh amongst us doing signs and healings. And man, it's like, why is this so heavy? Because you're still out of covenant and you're just following the halakha, the rules of the community that still adheres to the works of the law, the book of the law. You're not understanding Yahusha's redemptive work fully. That's the problem. It just can't happen by observing the book of the law. Verse 6, even as Avraham believed Yahweh and it was counted to him as zadachah, righteousness. Now we've got Shaul talking about Abraham. And this what? This presupposes some kind of teaching by Shaul about him and therefore some kind of engagement with the Torah and the covenants of promise, does it not? And how does the institutionalized church skip over this? Paul here is connecting back to Abraham, therefore he is connecting back to Torah. You cannot deny verse 6 is a connection back to the Torah. But how is it a connection back to the Torah? This is not abstract lawlessness. May it never be so. Verse 7. Now therefore, that those who are of emunah, faith, the same, they're the children of Abraham. That's what we're supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be a child of the rabbis. I'm not supposed to be a Levitical child. I'm not supposed to be a child of Judah. 
or a child of Gad or whatever tribe has got superiority this month, racial superiority over another tribe. No, I'm supposed to be Benai Avraham. And the scripture, verse 8, foreseeing that Yahuwah would justify the heathen through faith. That's what he did in my life. That's what he's done in your lives. He justified some English heathen with generational iniquity by faith. Buddha couldn't do that to me, for me because Buddha left his wife. He abandoned his wife. He abandoned his kids to seek enlightenment and he is rotting and his bones have turned to dust and he's in the grave. What a realization that was. How the hell can Buddha help me? 23-year-old Matthew says. He's dead. And what kind of example is this man? He abandoned his wife and kids to seek God? Buddha, Buddha, ding, ding. No way, right? This is what I'm thinking at 24 years old. I mean, I wasn't that smart then, obviously. I can always count on Brother Glenn to totally connect with my sense of humor. Thank you. There's one person in the assembly. Praise Yahuwah. It's because he's half mad. <laughs> and the scripture, verse 8, foreseeing that Yahuwah would justify the heathen through faith, proclaimed before the Bessorah the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations, all the nations be blessed. So then they are of Emunah, faith, are blessed with faithful believing Abraham. So this is the gospel defined. It's quoting, what is he quoting right here? Defining the gospel quotes Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. The gospel is embedded in Abraham. How did we miss that in seminary? The gospel, Christian church, the gospel is embedded in Abraham. Before the Levitical priesthood, before the book of the law, this is the gospel. The gospel is embedded in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And later we find the flaying open of the pieces in Genesis 15, and it connects to the Malchizedek covenants of promise, which brings what? A blessing. Ultimately, the gospel has to bring the blessing to the nations. If it's not bringing a blessing to the nations, it's not the gospel. If you isolate yourself and you become yourself in a fenced-off Jewish or rabbinic enclosure, is that a blessing to the nations? Therefore, it cannot be the gospel. And what I found in the Messianic movement after a decade or so is isolationism. We isolated ourselves from the Christian church by hating them, by judging them. But when we all came from that background, the majority of us, with sarcasm, and I include myself in that, the most sarcastic of us all. But what fruit did that bring? Did it bring anybody? No. So how could it be the gospel? Because the book of the law is not the gospel. Because it's never of faith. And the law is not of faith. 
We need to welcome people into Yahushua's blood-established covenant, which is always based on faith. Not works of the book of the law, which is always going to come back down to community halakha interpreted through the book of the law and interpreted through the community, and it's always void of a proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal. We've forgotten the example of Abraham. I mean, if you can't understand the pre-New Testament origins of the gospel, then you're likely to apply values and make judgments concerning the gospel that just aren't so, that are totally divorced from Yahweh's revelation of the Melchizedek covenants, which are always going to be encapsulated in the book of the covenant. Because that's the very gospel. It's the very gospel that was given to Abraham because he entered it by, in the Greek, pistis, faith, Hebrew, emunah. Look at verse 10. For as many as are followers of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continues not all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Am I insane by making a connection between the works of the law, curses, and the book of the law? Because it's all right here within this verse, which is skipped over not only by the institutionalized church, but by the Messianic and Hebrew roots movement too. But it says quite clearly... If you follow the works of the law, you're under the curse. Because cursed is everyone who continues not to do all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Because we're talking about here pistis, fidelity, faith. And the book of the law is unfaithfulness, thus brings forth curses. We have to notice that the works of the law and the blessing of Abraham which was, of course, by covenant, the promise. They're a dichotomy. They're a contradiction in terms. They are not and never will be the same. Yet covenant righteousness, on the other hand, has never come through the enactment of damage control cleanup laws governing animal sacrifice, stipulations that were offered only to expunge the direct or collateral guilt because they broke the covenant at the golden calf. You see, the context right here of verse 10, it identifies what the works of the law are, which commentators have been tripping up over for thousands of years. The works of the law are the community halakha connected to the book of the law that identifies whether you're in the community or whether you're out of the community. And like I said in the past couple of weeks, even the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript for QMMT, it confirms this with dozens of copies of the book of the law in jars that were unraveled that show this is how the community interpreted whether you were in or out based upon their interpretation or halakha of the book of the law. So from Shaul's point of view, when we look at verse 10, 
Those following the works of the law, now identified as the book of the law, violated the very Torah they were trying to uphold. And this is what I realized after over a decade in the Messianic movement. I was violating the very Torah that I was trying to uphold because I'd forgotten the most important Torah mandate, which is what? Be a blessing to all nations, that they be blessed in you, Genesis 12, 3. And I'd become an isolationist. I've got my little own Torah group over here, and our Torah, we're way more observant than that group. And oh my goodness, the institutionalized church, well, they're just lost. Oh, blooming pagans, you know? Right? Wrong. It's this exclusionism. It's isolationism. It is, in fact, keeping the Torah yet not because you're violating the most important commandment of the Torah, which is the gospel, to be a blessing unto the nations. How can you do that when you're behaving that way? You see, this mandate can't be annulled by the influencer's book of the law, Halakha. This is what Paul is saying. Because that will inevitably do what? It will leave them cursed by Yahweh. Why are you cursed by Yahweh? Because you ignored his mandate of being a blessing to the nations. You didn't consider the implications of faith within the community in light of Yahushua's blood ratification. It's always going to be about Yahushua's blood for me. Always. It's always. I always will go back to the inception point in my life, sitting in that field with my bongos, my flute, void of faith, and the inception point of hearing and faith. It will always go back. I may get, go here and there, but I'll always go back to that which is what? My first love. My first love. Following the works of the law, the book of the law, halacha, by the sect of influence, then... And the Hebrew roots today leads nothing more than exclusionism. The nations are excluded. And that's contrary to the promise. How can it be the gospel? And if you do that, you'll end up cursed, feeling that heavy weight that not even our fathers acts. Not even our fathers. Why would you put a yoke so heavy upon them that not even our fathers could carry, right? They'll end up cursed because their book of the law is sectarian Torah. And sectarian Torah is not of faith. It violates and disregards the promise of Yahweh because Yahweh, he wants to bless the earth. He wants to bless the nations. I mean, do you really believe, do you really believe the nations want to get dressed up in Jewish garb? Do you really believe all the nations, they're going to want to celebrate Hanukkah. They want to celebrate Purim. They're going to want to look like smelly woodsmen and they're going to want to wear tea cozies on their head. Yes, the nations are going to get right on board with that. That's insane. They're not up for that. You and I might have been up for it for a bit. But you know what? No. No, they're not going to go for that. That is sectarian Torah. You've got your own little group. Right? I mean, but she, my wife is cracking up because she knows it's true. We have, have we not seen all that? 
totally. It is totally. All right? You're in our group if your beard hits your belly button and your baseball hat has got yod hey wahe on it. But you're not if you're wearing a tea cozy that is hand-stitched and crotcheted. Or crocheted, sorry. <laughs> That's what I think of that, right? <laughs> sorry. Bit of a Freudian right there. This is where I continue on with the next verse. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's a law of fidelity or a law of work, those infidels. They should be kicked right up the crochetate. <laughs> Let's look at Romans chapter 3, verse 27. You won't find that word there. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? No mors ergon, works of law? No. But by no mors pistis, the law of faith. We've got two different terms here. Two different terms. Look at Romans 3.28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Yahweh forbid... We establish the law. You see, right here, this is very telling. We can't skip over this. You see, Shaul has identified something for us, both a law of works that is now, it's at very odds with the law of faith. There's two different laws, and they are at odds. They are at war with one another. There is the law of works and the law of faith. One more war that we must wage against. And these are two words and two phrases by Paul's very own hand. Nomos ergon, works of law, the book of the law, versus nomos pistis, works of faith, the book of the covenant. The phrase law of faith gives rise to the knowledge of a distinct law that defines faith. All that Yahweh has said we shall do. Book of the Covenant, Exodus 19, 4. Right there. It's right there. By his very own hand. So there's this non-desirable works of law. And it in no way suggests that there won't be any works at all, right? It doesn't suggest that. The Greek word here is pistis. And it could have easily been translated as fidelity. Because if you're in faith, you're faithful. In faith, you have a marriage of fidelity. It really takes us all back to marriage and covenant. So in actuality, we have a distinct law that defines fidelity, excuse me, meaning faithfulness. Deeds that are at odds with the works of the law, which is the book of the law. That is fidelity, meaning doing something, versus the law, i.e. doing something, that is a distinct defining law of responsible fidelity, and that is covenant fidelity, covenant law. So what we have right here is nomos ergon, the book of the law, Versus nomos pistis, the book of the covenant. Faith versus works of law. 
Where's your Torah now? You have to rightly divide it. Law, nomos ergon, book of the law, was the redeeming prescriptive law initially before Messiah. But it was set in place not to oppose this covenant or its covenant law, but to reinstate that one to right standing. Because they were in fear of judgment and being totally wiped out. But it reinstated them into right standing because they had broken the fidelity covenant law, that law of faith, which is nomos pistis. That's Melchizedek covenant fidelity. Look at verse 11. But that no man is declared a Zadik by the law in the sight of Yahweh is evident. For the Zadik shall always, the righteous shall always live by the inception point, faith. The book of the law, it cannot declare you righteous because the sole purpose of the book of the law, it was imposed to spare Israel from death because they were a bunch of infidels. Infidelity to the covenant. And that is why Paul says the law is not of faith. And the church has interpreted that as lawlessness. But we understand it is the book of the law is not of faith. It was imposed because they were unfaithful to the book of the covenant. You've got two distinct laws here that are in opposition, warring against one another until the king of war sheds his blood and can reconcile you back to the covenant. Too many people are trying to keep the book of the law commandments by rote instead of entering the book of the covenant by faith and hearing. Faith, which is always makes the mitzvah, keeping the commandments, a joy. It's light and it forces us to go beyond Yahweh's word. We have to go beyond Yahweh's word. We can't just be so much in the black text. We have to be in the white What's going on between the verses is where the Ruach HaKodesh dwells. It's the white fire that the believers are to be reading. When I read the word, I'm looking for the white fire. Yes, I read the black text, but it's the white fire that changes my life. We have to go beyond the word of Yahweh because Yahweh in the white fire, that's where he draws us unto himself and that is where we become the blessing to the nations i can only be a blessing to the nations when i'm drawn away from my sinful desires drawn unto yahweh himself and that's through the ruach hakodesh never through my intellect logic and reason because that will fail me because that is not of faith this and this is faith Verse 12, and the law is not made by Emunah, but by the man that does what is written in it. That's how he shall live in them. Now, Avi ben Mordecai, in his commentary on Galatians, this is just so inspiring to me. Because in his commentary in Galatians, he uses 
Exodus 19.4. Of all the passages in Scripture, Avi ben Mordecai uses Exodus 19.4, the book of the covenant text. He uses it as a proof text to support that the law is of faith. It says the law is not of faith. But Avi goes, look, the law is of faith. And he takes you back to Exodus 19.4 to show you that it is of faith. But that's the book of the covenant. So he, in fact, even though he drops the needle, shows you, and they're almost there, that yes, the book of the covenant is of faith. But the book of the law, the rest, that's not of faith. But they don't make that connection because their dichotomy is an oral law, written law. Whereas we understand that it is a book of the law, not of faith. And then we'll go to the same text that Avi will go to because it's plain to see that the book of the covenant, yes, Avi, it is of faith. This is inspiring to me because I'm like, look... They're lining it up, but just not quite connecting it. But they're using the very covenant text to support the argument. But the argument, the dichotomy that they have, written law, oral law, is the wrong dichotomy. It's book of the law, book of the covenant. Thus, you use book of covenant text to support your argument, right? It's amazing, inspirational to me. To see that, even though they don't quite thread the needle. Inspirational to me. We know that the book of the law was imposed without any faith acceptance. You live only because you do what's written within it. You transgress it, you die. The blessing is, well, you're alive, right? The curse is, you disobey, you die. That's all that the book of the law has for you. Now, David Stern in his complete Jewish Bible, he just just plain out fabricates verse 12. I don't know if any of you have. Does anybody here have the complete Jewish Bible? You do? Can you read me verse 12? Galatians 3 verse 12. Furthermore, legalism is not based on trusting and being fruitful, but on... Not fruitful. I mean, it's a fruity verse, but yeah. Okay, so this is one of the most popular Hebrew roots in Messianic Bibles. And this is just literally, verse 12, fabricated. Let me read it again for you. Furthermore, legalism is not based on trusting and being faithful, but on a misuse of the text that says, anyone who does these things will attain life through them. What? Manuscript says that. (laughs) It's outrageous. So we've jumped from the frying pan of lawlessness into making up, and I'm like that close to saying it, making stuff, Another word that begins with S, making stuff up 
because we are so gung-ho about anything Jewish and Torah that we're willing to compromise the biblical text. What happened to us? I thought we were people of faith, truth, honesty, and righteousness, which is mean we take equal weights and measures, yet we're going to judge the NIV because they insert Jews where there's no word Jews, idiosis in the Greek, and they insert all kinds of stuff. We're going to go and do the same, but it supports Torah? That, that's a, no one's going to say. I mean, how can you do that? I mean, I read that, and I, I almost fell out of my chair. I was cracking up at it. Outrageous. Legalism? A misuse of? I mean, this is total messianic fabrication trying to strain out the gnat of lawlessness and swallowing a camel of speculative theories in its place, whilst being blind to what's plain in the text, book of the law. Right there in the text. Well, no, no, we, no, we, don't, want to, no, we don't want to talk about that. The book of the law and the book of the covenant, they're synonymous. It's the same thing. Now let's move on. Well, the Elohim that I knows, every, I knows, the Elohim that I know, every word means something. And if he wanted the book of the law and the book of the covenant to be synonymous, then he would have made an ark of the law. And he would have got rid of Deuteronomy 31 that exposes the fact that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are two distinct laws. One's outside that witness against what you broke and is broken on the inside. So maturity then brings forth much repentance, does it not? It has in my life. It truly has. Verse 13. Moshiach has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree that the bracha, the blessing of Abraham, might come upon the nations through Yahusha HaMashiach, that we might receive the promise of the Ruach HaKodesh through faith. And the older I get and the more difficult life becomes, and if it does, I think, the more reliant I realize I am on the Ruach HaKodesh. Because the more I become smart, the more I know the more reliant I need to be on Yahweh because I still haven't got it. And I'm a constant disappointment to myself in my human frailties and failings. And it is only when the Ruach HaKodesh invigorates me, inspires me through the word and prayer that I find some redemptive quality within me. It truly is. And this right here is one of those verses that I would just like to say, I repent. Because when I was a pastor in the institutionalized church, I used this verse and I'd go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and I'd say, see, look, Jesus died on the cross and the handwriting that was against us, the law, well, that's done away with now. Happy Christmas, everybody. Then when I got into the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement, gung-ho for Torah, 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 we were like, ha-ha! See, it's not that he was against the law. 
He was against the law of sin that was against us. You know, the law of the adulterous bride in Numbers chapter 5, Numbers chapter 6. Um, the law of adultery that was against us. Is it five or six? It is five, thank you. Um, that was the law that was against us. And now that Messiah has died, we are no longer adulterers and we can relate to the Torah the right way. That's what I taught for so many years. Both of them I repent of publicly because in my desperation I strain out the gnat of lawlessness and I trip over what? Torah, 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 and the Jewish rabbi's seat, seat. And I find that that isn't so either. Because if we actually were to look at Colossians 2 verse 14, we'll see within the very text, it says, what is this law that Paul is talking about in Galatians, that this law that we have been redeemed from, this curse of the law, this curse of the law which was written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. So what did Yahushua's hanging on the tree do in our relation to how we live out the law? What is his crucifixion. What did he do? Did he just get rid of the the law of adultery that was against us? Or was it something else? What was it that was against us? Was it the law of adultery in Numbers chapter 5? Well, that's what I taught. Now, the church tells you it's the whole of the law that was against you, and we realize that's not right either. Let's look, because Paul uses this word in Colossians 2.14. It's the Greek word choreographion choreographion, handwriting, right? Makes sense. Choreographion, handwriting. It was the handwriting, choreographion, that was against us. Now, according to the Torah, Moshe recorded that the law, the book of the law, is what would be against us. Not Numbers chapter 5. But now we go to Deuteronomy 31, and we're going to find, not my opinion, not your opinion, not your opinion even. We're going to find the written text, tell us, in multiple witnesses, exactly what was against us. And then we can make our decision based upon truth and righteousness with integrity. Deuteronomy 31, verse 26. Take this book of the law... There it is. I'm not making it up. And put it in the side of the Ark of the Law. Oh, sorry, it says covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your Elohim, that it may be there as a witness against you. So the book of the law is a witness against you. When Yahushua died, he got rid of the law that was a witness against you. It's not the Numbers 5 law, as the Hebrew roots and Messianic community make up and fabricate. And I have been guilty of that. I admit it. You may even be able to find an archive teaching on it. Deuteronomy 31, verse 19. Look at the context of Deuteronomy 31. This is Torah defining Torah. And it reveals that something scathing, something that Moshe says is against us. Deuteronomy 31 verse 19. That this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. Context is, of course, the book of the law. 
Verse 20, then will they turn unto other Elohim and serve them and provoke me and break my covenant. Deuteronomy 31 verse 21, that this song shall testify against them as a witness. Verse 26, that this may be there for a witness against thee. Verse 27, you have been rebellious against Yahweh, and how much more after my death? Verse 28, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. And verse 29, for I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourself. So the Torah context of Deuteronomy 31, it defines Paul's use of the Greek word choreographon in Colossians 2 verse 14. And what about Ephesians 2.15? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances to make in himself of twain one new man therefore bringing, bringing peace into our lives. You see, the law of commandments contained in ordinances is not and never has been a record of our sin debt in Numbers chapter 5. That was just completely fabricated by myself and other teachers in the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement. Fabricated. And I am sorry. I repent. I was wrong. And I truly grieve for that. But I didn't know. I drank the Kool-Aid. I drank the Kool-Aid. Just because the person serving it had some nice seat seats, I believed them. Just like so many of us did. But, you know, it's okay to stand up and say, I'm wrong. I don't understand why that is so hard for people just to repent. So they've got too much riding on their ministries or their public profile. It's too above it. But you know, I find when you just confess up and admit that you're just dreadful, that it only takes you back to your inception point where you should have admitted that in the first place. And hey, if he can do that then, well, he can do something with this situation too. So I'm always ready to go to my knees because I know where I came from. And I know where he's taken me. But if you don't know where you came from and you never had a hearing and a faith and an inception point of faith, then guess what? Confessing your sins, it's kind of scary, especially publicly, because you've never humiliated yourself before the Creator. And that's it. You're not born again. I already humiliated myself before the Creator, and that's why I've been redeemed, because I was willing to say, look at this. Humiliated stripped naked. And that's the reality. None of us are going out in this cashmere. None of us are, right? Bloody itches anyway. I mean, it's just outrageous. Anyway. Wow. I am just amazed at what he has done in my life. I'm amazed at what he's done in your lives too. That you're still sitting here listening to this teaching. That's amazing to me. Because Calvary Chapel's down the road and they're open for business still. Still. Wow. 
once you set your hand to the plow, you can never look back, can you? Otherwise, you are unfit for the kingdom. Mm -mm, mm -hmm. You can't return to the dog vomitorium. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Just you're talking about dog vomit. Um, when you look at the Latin of the Vatican, Vaticanus, Vaticanus, you know, because that was a hill outside of Rome. It was a swampy marsh where they would bury the dead bodies. But because it was a swampy marsh, what would happen when the rains came, just like they do down in um, New Orleans, when the rains come... The, the, the bodies would rise up out of the ground and then the canines would go up there and feed on the dead bodies. Vaticanus. The habitation of the dogs. Vaticanus. The Vatican. I mean, it's right there. Bloody dogs outside the gates. Filthy creatures. Feeding on dead bodies, right? I mean, there's a whole teaching right there about Christmas. Isn't there? Vaticanus. I wonder if the Pope knows that. We should tell him. Maybe he'll move. Maybe he'll move. Yeah, he's going to bloody move to Jerusalem, isn't he? Cheeky monkey. Oh, my goodness. Verse 15. That's where we're at. Thank you. Yahweh, praise Yahweh. Israelite brothers, I speak after the manner of men. Here's a good one. Even if a Brit, a covenant is a man's Brit covenant, yet still, if it is confirmed, no man can set it aside and no man can add to it. This is the biggest stumbling block, I think, to people understanding the book of the law and the book of the covenant dichotomy is that the Book of the Covenant has a proposal. Yahweh proposes to Israel. They accept it. Oh, yes, Yahweh, all that you said we will do. There's a proposal and there's its acceptance. Then the blood is taken. It's sprinkled over the covenant. Then the 70 elders go up on top of the mountain, Exodus 24, verse 8 through 24, verse 11, and they finish with a covenant-confirming meal. You have a proposal and acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal. Sealed, done, Exodus 24, verse 11. It's done. That is the book of the covenant. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Can you add anything else to that in verse 12, 13, 14? Can you add anything else to that? Can you? Can you take anything out from, away from it? It's done. It is blood ratified. It is sealed. So then in verse 12, when Yahweh says to Moses, come up here also and receive this law, can that be anything to do with the preceding covenant that is already being blood ratified? It's got to be something completely different, correct? And this is the biggest stumbling block. The Torah is chronological. You're reading the Bible, the Torah, as if it's all nice and neatly chronological. And you can't understand that verse 11 and verse 12 are not chronological. Something happened 
after the blood ratification, and it's called the golden calf. But in your Greek Western minds, of a, you've, got, you've got the cross, and you've got the chronology before, and then there's the cross, and nice and linear, and after the cross, you've got this, and you've got the whole timeline of Israel, and you've got 1948, and now biblical prophecy is going to come forth, and it's all failed, right? I mean, but this is our Greek Western thinking. The Torah is not chronological. Meaning this, the mitzvot are achronological, but the narrative is chronological. Believe me, week in, week out, week in, week out, over 500 Torah parshas, you pretty much can see this. Let me give you a point example. Exodus chapter 16, verse 34. How could Aaron turn there? Exodus chapter 16, verse 34. How could Aaron lay up manna beside the ark of the testimony? Can anybody please answer that question? Exodus chapter 16, verse 34. In our Greek Western minds, the Torah, it's just all nicely laid out in chronological order. Exodus chapter 16, verse 34. Aaron lays up the manna beside the ark of the testimony. But hang on a minute. The ark of the testimony didn't get created till Exodus chapter 25. Where's your chronology now? Exodus 25 is when the Ark of the Testimony was made. So how in Exodus chapter 16 verse 34 could he lie the manna up behind the side of the Ark of the Testimony that didn't even exist until chapters later? Case in point. The narrative is in a chronological order. We're talking about the manna. We're talking about manna week, and we're talking about where the manna would be laid up. So it makes sense to be talking about the Ark of the Testimony. Even though the mitzvot is achronological, and the commandment to make the Ark of the Testimony, it doesn't happen till chapters later. You have to distinguish between the commandment and the narrative. The commandments are not chronological. But the narrative might include some commandments that are not chronological in it. Meaning there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be chronological, right? After Abraham didn't come Jacob, Isaac came first. There's a chronology to it. But the commandments are not in a chronological order. And this is where people just cannot get their head around the distinction between Exodus 24.11 and Exodus 24.12. They cannot see the break because they've got to have a chronology. Because chronology, it helps me think I'm smart and I can sleep at night because I've got it all figured out. But you know what? I do not have all this figured out. I am fearfully and wonderfully made and I am not that smart. But I have to admit that Yahweh is the great master craftsman and he is weaving such an intricate tapestry that you and I cannot even comprehend even if we know Paleo-Hebrew. 
We cannot comprehend where the next thread is going or coming from. But yes, in his sovereignty and his mercy, he does give us some insight. But if we've got chronology, then we are smarter than him and we can figure it all out and off to seminary we go. But it's not that simple. It's really not. But I can clearly see from Exodus chapter 16, verse 34, and there are numerous other texts. I think I've done a whole teaching on how there's a distinction between the narrative, which is chronological, and the mitzvot, which is achronological. And this is something that even some of the unregenerate sages have acknowledged for millennia. And the arguments abound, and the arguments abound. But many people who are studying the Torah week in, week out, over periods of time, you can see that it cannot be all nice and linear and neat. All that to say this, you cannot add or take away from a blood-ratified covenant. Exodus 24.11, it is sealed with a covenant-confirming meal. So that law that Yahweh said that he would give in Exodus 24.12 is the book of the law that was imposed because between Exodus 24.11 and Exodus 24.12 was the golden calf breach. The golden calf breach. And there was an imposition of the law. Does Yahweh know all things? When he called Moshe up the mountain, did he know that they would be down the base of the mountain whoring? Does he know all things? Yes, he does. And he includes us in that revelation. This is amazing. If the Torah is all neatly chronological, then how do you deal with many of the texts? Like Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. You can't. You have to admit in sincerity and honesty and humbleness that the narrative is chronological, but the mitzvot, are chronological. Verse 16. Because that is something that is really hard for people. They get so caught up on it. Does that make sense? Have I lost you all on that? Galatians 3 verse 15 is very clear to me. And of course, like I said, Exodus chapter 16 verse 34 and Exodus chapter 25 make it very clear. Now, verse 16, to Avraham and to his Zerah seed were the promises made. He said, not unto your seeds, as in many, but as of one, and to your Zerah seed, which is Moshiach. And this I say, that the Brit, the covenant that was confirmed by Yahweh through Moshiach, the law that came 430 years later, what law? The book of the law came 430 years after the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. Now, some commentators will tell you that Israel, they were in slavery for Egypt for 430 years. I think Hollywood will definitely tell you that. But they weren't. Exodus chapter 6 and the genealogy shows you that. They were in, in Israel for 200. They were in, Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 210 years. But from the time of the covenant of promise to the book of the law, 430 years. 
430 years. And you can go back to Genesis and you can see that that promise, till the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Israel had to wait until their redemption drawed nigh. And this I say, verse 17, that the covenant that was confirmed by Yahweh through Mashiach, the law, the book of the law, that came 430 years later, that book of the law, it cannot, it never will be able to nullify the covenant given to Abraham so that it should make the promise of no effect. Amen? Amen. For if the inheritance is from the book of the law, it is no, bar, no more by the word of the promise. Can all of the inheritances that were given to Abraham come by through the Levitical book of the law? May it never be so. Of course not. But it is given to Abraham through promise. Bam, right there. I mean, how do you deal with that? You have to skip over it very quickly. You see, the promise of the inheritance, Yahusha's redemptive work is not part of of the legal aspect of Torah, which is the book of the law. It's a covenant in its own right. It's a covenant in its own right. It is not part of the legal aspect of Torah, that prescriptive, added, imposed tutor, the book of the law until the time of Reformation. No, it is the covenant given to Abraham by hearing and by faith. You see, Yahushua's redemptive work is linked to the promise given to Avraham. His death confirms the death penalty payment of Genesis 15, and then that connects us back to the oath that was sworn in Genesis 12. The book of the law came 430 years after the Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 covenant, and it no ways can nullify that Genesis 12 oath. Never which would make the promises of no effect. Somebody's trying to come through the wall. (laughs) I hope it's not a spy camera. I'm serious, there's a drill. Stop it. Calvary Chapel next door (laughs) trying to come through the bloody wall spying this is true let's invite them in can somebody go next door with a hammer and take out their drill I wouldn't be surprised if a cord came through Infiltrators, thank you, to spy out our freedom in Mashiach. Good word right there. Look at verse 19. What purpose then does the book of the law, the Torah, serve? It was added because of transgressions. Doesn't this become so clear? The book of the law was added because of transgressions until the zirah, the seed, should come to whom the promise was made. And heavenly angels through the hands of a mediator ordained it. You can connect this with Hebrews chapter 9 verse 10. Which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances that were imposed upon them 
until Messiah would come, that time of reformation. That's messianic restoration right there. What about Acts 3.21? Until the time of the restitution of all things. And you can connect that with with, um, the rest of the scriptures that we're talking about. Acts chapter 15 verse 10. Now therefore, why do you tempt Yahweh? Why do you tempt Yahweh to put a heavy messianic yoke, I made that bit up, upon the disciples which neither their fathers nor I were able to bear? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Hebrews 7.12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made necessity and also there's a change of the law. The Torah has been changed and how we relate to it. Now again, I'm sorry to keep bringing him up, but I'm really not. David Stern in his commentary, now we've got one right here. He says in, he says in this verse right here, verse 19, that the, what does it say? Read it to me, nice and loud. It is. He says, the mitzvot were added in order to create transgressions. The commandments, hang on a minute, no, 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 we want to make sure we've got this right. The commandments, Yahweh added the commandments because he wanted you to start sinning. (laughs) The mitzvot were added in order to create transgressions. In other words, to make people what, aware of their sins? Now, now, if Yahweh was in the business of creating transgressions, then that would make him an aider and a better to sin. Right? But Shaul has already told us that that's a heresy in, two, in chapter 2, verse 17. And he says, may it never be. So David, stu- they are literally trying to come through the blooming wall. Steve, somebody who's got some go. Jonathan, get, I mean, you've got you, you to tell them off. Don't be nice. John, get, yes, with a hammer. They really are trying to come through the wall. Do they not know what's going on in here? They're fixing to find out. You know, I love the way you said, they're fixing to find out, those sons of... They're fixing to find out, I'm going to go around there and slap them with a catfish. Right? That's where you are. So I see how you roll down there in Arkansas. Saucy Arkansas. But you know what? Yahweh is amazing because Corey, Corey once... He has done such an amazing job in the back, and he's actually developing our new website. Corey told me many years ago he was behind that wall with with another church causing mayhem, and a bunch of bearded, seat-seat-wearing men were sent round there to work them over and tell them to stop it. Now, I hope that was a drill. 
because that sounded awfully lot like gas, did it not? And we know they're not keeping the dietary requirements. So, you know, it could be one of those church potlucks, right? And that's just wrong. All right, I have got to stay focused. Sorry. Sorry, guys, it's outrageous. But it's, how can you concentrate when they're doing this? Crying out loud. Verse 20. Oh. We were talking about David Stern and his translation, his transgressions. But, you know, it just shows you, doesn't it, how desperate in the messianic movement to strain out, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel to support your doctrine. When it's like, come on, the Bible doesn't say that, never did say that, never will say that. Why do we make stuff up and stick it in these Hebraic Bibles? I don't get it. I mean, it's outrageous. But what we do discover from the text is, look, Verse um, 19, the seed would come to whom the promise was made and the heavenly angels through the hands of a mediator ordained it. The book of the law was mediated by Moshe Rabbeinu and through the hands of the angels. This is hugely important. The angels mediated and were somehow involved in this book of the law that was added for transgressions. The angels were involved with the giving of the book of the law. This angelic administration is very telling because it is, in, it is evidence of the inferiority of the book of the law. It is evidence of the inferiority, inferiority of the book of the law because the book of the covenant was given directly by Yahweh. And it is greater. Yet the inferior book of the law was mediated by angels. Very important that you recognize that distinction. Now a mediator, verse 20, does not represent one party, but Yahuwah is Echad. Is the Torah, is the law, the book of the law, then against the promises of Yahuwah? Let it never be. For if there had been a law given that could have given us life, then truly zadachah, righteousness, would have been given and been through that law. The book of the law isn't against the promises of Yahuwah, but it certainly isn't the promise of Yahuwah either, is it? You see, the book of the law, it can't give life. The book of the law was just a life preserver. It could never give life. Life was already given. And our life is always given by what? Faith and the hearing inception point. That's how life is given. And that is covenant, Exodus 19.4. The book of the law... It's not against the promises of Yahweh, but it is not the promise of Yahweh because it is only a life preserver. Yahusha's life and salvation is what gives us life. And then his blood ratification, once we hear by faith, we're indwelt by the Ruach HaKodesh, 
And he takes us safely into covenant book of the covenant Torah. It may take us many years to get there, but eventually we get there if we have the heart for righteousness. This is exciting. This is exciting. Sorry about the distractions. I'm going to go around there and do a little bit of wrestling. And we will now bless one another. We don't have food today, but we do have numerous amounts of fellowship. Praise Yahweh. As we look at Galatians, the dichotomy is not the written law and oral law dichotomy. It is not the dichotomy of New Testament grace and total abandonment of the Torah. The dichotomy is the book of the covenant by hearing and faith, the book of the law which was added for transgressions, not of faith, the law not of faith, that was only a tutor, a schoolmaster, until the time of Reformation, when Messiah would bring us back through his death penalty, blood ratification. He proposed to us when he came in to Jerusalem, and we said, yes, we accept it. Then there was his crucifixion and the shedding of his blood. And there was the Passover, blood ratification, covenant confirming meal. We are now in the Malkit Zedek, covenant Torah of promises. And we relate to Torah differently than lawlessness. And we relate differently to Torah than a book of the law, which means you're still cursed. And there's a heavy spirit that not even our fathers could burden. Praise Yahweh. He's lifted the burden and he's opened the veil and given us the key of knowledge. Amen. Questions, comments? Uh, yeah, we do have two questions uh, so far from the internet audience. Um, the first one being, um, they're trying to draw the correlation because of Nomos, uh, Matthew 23, 23, where the Messiah says that faith is one of the weightier matters of law. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Perfect, yeah. So there is, meaning there's, there's the, the weight, the, the Torah of weight, meaning weight as in it's more important, not like burdensome, heavy. And yet Yahushua always addresses that. And he says, there's a weightier matter of the Torah, meaning that you've got to rightly divide the Torah and the weightier matter is covenant Torah. Excellent point. The second one uh, was... Was the first set of tablets the same as the second? Well, there was the first set of tablets which was um, established. And then, no, we had the second set of tablets because the first set were broken. And then the second set of tablets, and we have that. I forget the scripture back in Deuteronomy. There's a distinction. Okay, questions? No questions. Oh, yes, Stephanie. So in response to that last question, you're saying that the very same thing was written on that second set of tablets. Give me the scripture. I'm always better when I'm in the... Deuteronomy what? Yeah, let's go there. Let's go there. Deuteronomy.
Yeah, um, I forget where the verse is. I'd have to have a little bit more prep. But no, there's a distinction between the first set of tablets and the writing on the second set of tablets. But we should definitely... That would be a great study to go into. But no, there is a distinction, a definite distinction between, between the two. Any other questions, comments? Yes, in the back there. The book of yeah on. in the book of Colossians when we were talking about what was nailed to the stake uh, later on a few verses it quotes something but uh, my question is always what was it quoting touch not handle not taste not uh, feel not and then it says that, uh, according to the element elementary matters of the world and not to Mashiach according to the doctrine of men oh yes 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 with with Colossians the question was regarding Colossians chapter 2 um, verse 13 and 14 and talking about the handwriting on the that was against us we've now established that based upon the context of Deuteronomy 31 that it was the book of the law that was against us but then it goes on to say um, in verse 16 so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a sabbath which are shadow or or shadows of good things to come, but the body of Messiah. So the, this is one of those texts that has been used by the institutionalized church. See, you shouldn't be keeping the Sabbath, you shouldn't be keeping the festivals, these were Jewish, but they forget in the context of Colossians chapter 2, which of course tells us in verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Messiah. So the question you'd have to ask is, are the festivals, the feasts, and the Sabbaths of Yahweh the vain traditions of men, and are they the doctrines of the world? Well, of course not. So we've got to be talking about astral gazing, Colossian false deity worship, where they would have days, time, seasons for their deities. And Rav Shaliak Shaul is saying to the Colossian community, let no one judge you when you keep the Sabbaths, the festivals and the new moons, except the body of Messiah. The body of Messiah is supposed to judge you. We're supposed to judge one another when we come together, right? But whatever the heathen does with all their astral stargazing, that's got nothing to do. Don't let them judge you because you're holy. When we come together on the Sabbath, don't let the heathen judge us because we don't go to their things. When we're, we're gone for the feasts and festivals, don't let your work judge you because you're gone, you know? When you can't do things on Sabbath because the workers want to come around because it's convenient for them, don't let them judge you because you're not going to do it. Have them come around on Sunday. I'll work Sunday. No problem. Oh, but you don't want to, right? They'll judge you for being righteous instead of the community of Messiah should judge us when what and when we're supposed to do. And then we look here when we see in verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has seen not, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the, to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together to the joints, the ligaments, 
that grows with the increase that is from Elohim. Therefore, if you died with Messiah from the basic principles of the world, now there's the context again. We're not supposed to be involved in the basic principles of the world. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to the regulations of the Colossian astral deity and star worship? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerns things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. This is talking about the context of asceticism. Oh, it's this deity. This is the day that we fast. Do not touch. Do not handle. And on this deity, then we, have, we, we, we need to... Um, clothing, shelter. They would deny themselves these basic things based upon the deity. There would be days when they would fast. There would be days when they would wear certain clothing. And they would, they would whip and humiliate themselves for the astral deity. And it's do not touch, do not handle. That's the whole context of Colossians. But the most important thing that we see, that handwriting that was against us. Deuteronomy 31, the book of the law. Yahweh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Abba for Abba Yeruach HaKodesh, that you chose us before the foundations of the world. And we were discarded. And Abba, we were covered in blood. We were still just there by the side of the road. And Abba, you picked us up. You washed us. You cleansed us. You anointed us with oil. And you wrapped us in clothing. And you took us unto your bosom. Abba, we thank you in Yahusha's mighty name for choosing us before we were chosen, you knew us. In Yahushua's mighty name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Amen.